0: Welcome, good to have you here today with BIB Today, we're the daily business news podcast from the Business of Vancouver Newspaper and BIB.com. I'm Kirk LePoint.
1: I'm Haley Wooden. Coming up later on the show, we'll find out how a Quebec startup is actually helping a local not-for-profit raise funds. And right after this, we'll speak to the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada about their latest national opinion poll. Canadians are warming up to Asia and 59% believe trade with the region will outweigh trade with the United States in the future. These are some of the findings from the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada's National Opinion Poll, which has been capturing Canadians' views toward Asia since 2004. Joining me today with some more insight into the findings is Eva Busha, Vice President of Research and Programs at the Foundation, and Yushu Zhu, Program Manager for Surveys and polling. Thank you both for joining me.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: There's so much in this document. So if I want to start with you. What really stands out to you as being some of the most significant findings?
2: Well, for me, I think there are two
1: big findings and particularly in
2: this week where we've been seeing all sorts of movement in terms of protectionism and anti-trade coming from our neighbors in the South. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing is that Canadians are actually interested in, in, in engaging and enthusiastic about engaging with Asia um, and that they're embracing uh, immigration. Um, they see value um, and uh, in tourism from Asia. Um, so they're taking a very different stance than perhaps what we're seeing in parts of Europe and in the U.S., um, I think the second thing that I find really interesting is that if you look at the results, um, we there is sort of a need to reconcile um, support for Canadian values, which comes out very strongly in the report, um, versus engaging in, in trade um, or investment with Asian countries. So what do I mean by that? Well, for example, um, we know we want to um, engage um and negotiate FTAs with Asian countries, but we want to see the comprehensive and progressive elements in those FTAs. And the question becomes, what will happen if those countries don't want to accept those measures? And how are Canadians going to feel about those those trade agreements? Similarly, you know, we're really positive about immigration from Asia into Canada, but we're concerned that um, a, a significant proportion of Canadians are concerned that immigrants are not accepting Canadian values. Mm-hmm. So I see those two elements as really standing out in
1: this year's poll. Yushu, what stands out to you?
3: Well, there are two um, points. Um, first is the eighty, um, the kind of the cut, um, striking number of people who perceive a worsening relationship with the U.S. versus the number that perceive. Um, improved or worsening and worsening relationship with Asian economies. Mm. So, eighty percent of Canadians say Canada-U.S. relationship is worsening, becoming worse. But the majority would say an improved or stable relationship with most Asian economies, including mm. China and India. That's first. And the second is a very interesting contrast between attitudes toward perceived economic importance of Asian economies versus um, warmth of feeling to those um, Asian economies. So we see that China, India, also U.S. too, that these are the three countries that people feel... Um, feel the most negative about. But when it comes to perceived economic importance to Canada, these three countries actually flips, the pattern flips. So people say these three countries are among the most important economies to Canada.
1: Yeah, 80%. That's such a big number. And historically, what was it two years ago, for example?
3: Um, It was about 28, between 20 to 30%.
1: Right, so there's been a major shift. Of course, everyone's Mm -hmm. familiar with some of the stories that may be fueling that sentiment. What do you think the impacts going to be? Will it push more people to say we need to diversify? Will it require maybe more attention on enhancing relationships with the states? What, what do you think happens? Um, absolutely. And I think actually in this year's poll, what you do see is the sense
2: that Canadians realize we have to diversify. Um, we had an interesting, you know, a, a large majority looking at the um, 10 years down the line um, think that trade um, with Asia is going to be more important than trade with the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, We asked a question about diversifying energy uh, trade and a very large percentage of Canadians felt that this was essential. So Canadians already realize that we need to diversify. But I suspect if these trends continue um, in terms of our U.S.-Canada relationship, you're going to see even more emphasis on Canadians um, wanting to see, ex- you know, using the CETA, which is the uh, um, arrangement we have with Europe, um, actually, you know, actualizing that and also support for the comprehensive and progressive um, trans tpp (laughs) Mm -hmm. cptpp which is with the other uh, with ASEAN countries and other Asian countries
1: Mm -hmm. one of the questions that ties into this is whether Canadians feel they're part of that Asia-Pacific identity how do we feel
3: um overall Canadians are pretty divided on this um um um, idea 40 percent of Canadians say that Canada is part of Asia-Pacific region and 47 say we don't belong to Asia-Pacific region. But if we look at the longitudinal trend, we can see that actually it's um, Canadians are feeling more connected to Asia-Pacific region. So the number was 80, 18% um, in 2013, mm. which is like a very significant improvement since then.
1: Yeah, it's come a long way. Can you tie identity to policy? Ever? uh, (laughs) Well, you (laughs) You ask a very complex question. (laughs) I think we have
2: to, um, because obviously, as a democratic state, you know, and this is a very abstract answer to this Mm -hmm. question, but as a democratic state, a government has to reflect the will of the people. And if the people um, want to see policies, whether it's foreign policy, whether um, in terms of our strategic alignment, whether it's trade policy, reflecting our values, then the government you know, has to be responsive to that. I think the interesting question that we really need to get a better understanding of is what are Canadian values? Um, in our poll, what comes out is at a pretty general level, which is we know that Canadians, for example, want to see Canada as a lead um, when it comes to the environment in the international arena. We want to be a lead on uh, human and uh, rights and democracy, Um So that's part of our value system. Um, But beyond that, I think we need to have a much better exploration of what it is that are Canadian values and what do we do when we come in, when some of those may be um, in conflict with some of our other goals of um, economic prosperity or engagement.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe I can add some points mm-hmm. there. Um, like, because you asked an interesting question. Um, then part of the question is about where, how, how can the Canadian public translate that kind of Asia Pacific identity into their views towards Canadian value or the foreign policy with Asian economies? And one observation that I made through this poll is that British Columbia actually has the strongest Um, Asia-Pacific identity. Um, 53% say Canada is part of Asia-Pacific region versus the national level at 43%. Mm. So it's pretty strong. Actually, it's strongest among basically the Canadian regions or provinces. But when you come to a lot of um, uh, questions regarding Canadian values or protecting or promoting Canadian values at home and abroad, as Eva just discussed, Actually, British Columbia is pretty conservative compared with other provinces. They are most concerned about, you know, the possible foreign threats to Canadian values.
0: So it's interesting.
3: Like, so you can you see this contrast, like how much people do people translate their identity to, you know, those more specific yeah, um, policy, you know, um, economic engagement or yeah or in, international engagement with Asia. Yes.
1: That's very interesting. And of course, if we were to drill down further and start to break apart Asia, Mm -hmm. you have the giants of China and India and Mm -hmm. many, many other countries. What are some of the insights you're able to glean in terms of how we feel about these different countries we could be doing trade with?
2: Well, I think one of the things that um, we've seen over the past couple of years is Canadians are much more sophisticated now about breaking down Asia. They don't see Asia as a monolith. Mm -hmm. And so what you see reflected in the poll, for example, is that warmth towards Japan and Korea or assessments of Japan and Korea's importance to us have really increased. Um, you know, Japan is, is I think, um, after sort of the EU-UK is the next, um, is the highest level um, uh, on the warmth scale for us. Um, so... We also an interesting, for example, we were talking about the comprehensive and progressive elements of a, a trade agreement. One interesting thing is that Canadians, um, if you look across um, across different Asian countries, what you find is that Canadians tend to be more assertive about incorporating those elements into an FTA with countries like China than they are, for example, with countries like with um, countries or regions like uh, Taiwan or Hong Kong. So there is a distinction there as well. Very
1: interesting. And if we were to look to, uh, say, to the EU, to the US, how do our current trading partners that have free trade agreements, although some of them may be in the process of being renegotiated, compared to, say, some of the countries and our ranking of them? Because I, you have a chart in the poll that looks at a number of countries. How do they sort of rank? Who are the leaders who are the laggards?
3: Um, So they're, like I said in the beginning, they're very interesting contrasts when, when you ask different question, questions on either, you know, warmth of feelings or economic um, importance. Mm-hmm. On the economic importance, obviously, like EK, EU, over the past years, we've seen they are among the top. Um, and the U.S., of course, even though people are, you know, people perceive worsening relationship with the, with the U.S., still its, um, paramount, um, importance to Canada is kind of, um, unchanged, remain unchanged. And also for China, too, China is one of the least liked country for Canadians, but people perceive it almost as important as EU. In terms of the economic importance to Canada. So that's very interesting um, contrast that we observe. And for Japan, um, it's although people feel most um, warm, the, the warmest to Japan, but it's, um, it's kind of its range of economic importance sits at the t- maybe top middle level. Mm. yeah
1: One of the things that jumped out to me in the report was mention of Canada's supercluster mm-hmm. initiative and mm-hmm. how willing Canadians might be to accept investment from Asia, and also the resources they might want to see to help promote Canadian startups abroad. What were some of the findings overall about what Canadians feel about Asian investment? Um,
2: So definitely Canadians feel, um, 59% feel that um, we need to be getting more investment from Asia. Um, We looked uh, in terms of the superclusters, what we found there was that Canadians are extremely supportive of the Canadian government helping startups in some of these superclusters get access to Asian markets. Um, A little less, but still strongly supportive of attracting Asian investment into those superclusters. We asked a specific question, though, on China and investment from China. And you see some interesting elements there. You know, across the board, um, sort of the majority are concerned about investment from China. And in particular, they're very concerned about residential um, real estate investment. Then they're concerned about in, um, strategic resources, strategic resources. Um, they're concerned about commercial real estate. Um, they're concerned about um, sort of mergers and acquisitions, in other words, Chinese investors getting a controlling state of an existing company. Um, where they're less concerned, I think it's only like a quarter of the popu- quarter percent a uh, quarter of 25 percent uh, of the population that they were worried was on sort of new types of investment, greenfield investments. Mm. Um, but that's that's specifically a question related to China. Um, so I think there is a distinction there between attitudes towards Chinese investment versus attitudes from other parts of Asia, um, of their investment into Canada.
3: Mm-hmm. I would like to add um, that actually we observe a dis- the distinction between Canada going out to Asian markets versus having Asian investment to Canada. So we see significantly stronger support for Canadian ex promoting Canadian export or investment in Asian markets, but less support, although still strong, but less support for having more Asian investment in Canada. So you see that kind of um, also interesting comparison too. Well, and that speaks to the upcoming
1: challenge. Once you have an agreement like CPTPP, it's then communicating the opportunities and really using it to both countries' advantage. And to that point, Eva, in our final moments here, what do you think happens next? There's so many distractions, (laughs) there's so many potential agreements and renegotiations going on and tariffs and the list goes on. What do you think would be smart priorities for Uh, Canada? Well, you know,
2: there's no question that Canada cannot for the time being take its eye off the NAFTA ball. And we, we saw that we that that was seen as a huge priority um, by, by ca- the Canadian population in terms of the focus of the government. Um, but you know, the good news is that the Canadian government has already been making progress towards um, pushing forward um, a trade uh, deal with the ASEAN countries, sort of revitalizing um, uh, some discussions with India, so those are sort of on track. And I think additional efforts need to be go- going to those. And then, as you said, you know, we have um, we're, we have the CPTPP now. You know, a trade agreement is only. Good if you actually take advantage of that. And so, um, we need to be working with business or encouraging business to take, um, those opportunities and start to bolster their engagement with the other, with the other Asian countries and also really realize the potential of, of our,
1: our uh, arrangement with the European Union. Great. Eva, Yushu, thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks. That's Eva Busha, Vice President of Research and Programs at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada and Yushu Zhu Program Manager for surveys and polling. Stay with us. Coming up after this, me and Kirk LaPointe will find out how a Quebec startup company is helping a local not-for-profit raise funds. The BC-based Society for Canadian Women in Science and Technology has partnered with a Quebec startup called Milo to help the organization fundraise through recurring micro-donations. Joining us to talk more about this new partnership is Danielle Livengood, Vice President at the Society for Canadian Women in Science and Technology. She joins us in studio. Thanks for coming on.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: And joining us on the line from Montreal is Phil Barrar, CEO and founder of Milo Financial Technologies. Thanks for joining us, Phil. My pleasure. Why don't we start with you. Tell us how Milo works and what the story is behind the company.
5: Yeah, so Milo is a micro-investing application that we launched back in July of 2017. It connects with your existing credit and debit cards. Every time you make a purchase with that existing credit and debit card, it rounds it up to the nearest dollar takes the spare change and puts it into an investment account. So we're helping millions of Canadians start uh, saving and investing with just every purchase they make.
1: Interesting. So sort of like the the digital version of if you bought something with a $10 bill, you put the change in the tip jar, but in this case, the tip jar is a, a savings account.
5: Absolutely. So people are saving for small goals like a new iPhone or going on vacation to larger goals like buying a house or even saving for retirement.
1: Okay. And Danielle, how did you first connect with Milo?
4: Actually, Milo approached us. Um, Also, I'll save you the mouthful of Society for Canadian Women in Science and Technology. (laughs) We like to call it Squist. So much easier. Uh So Milo reached out to Squist um, and invited us to be one of their featured charities uh, when they launched their Roundup to Give program, which is essentially instead of your money going into your savings account toward that new iPhone or vacation, uh, you can actually donate it to a registered charity using the Canada Helps platform.
0: And so how does it help your organization? That's uh, a great question.
4: Yeah. Uh, So Squist, we diversify our revenue streams as much as possible. Uh, We have different endowments that we rely on every year, we apply for a lot of grants, but increasingly the grant space uh, has required that every grant application be a new project. So you got to start something new, you can't support something you already do. And um, rarely do they include any funding for administrative or overhead costs. So uh, being able to find uh, additional ways to get donations and money that is, let's say, uh, free of strings, so to speak, um, really helps us keep our key programs continuing instead of continu- continuing to develop new things that can't be supported financially. Does, does
0: essentially a, a, almost a crowdsourced form of funding uh, augment that independence that you want?
4: It's it's an interesting thing to see because we've never done like a proper crowdfunding campaign. Uh, Squist has been around since 1981. And so we've done a lot of different ways of, of collecting money. And this year we've started a few new ones. And these small donation things really add up when you have a bunch of supporters, a bunch of members who are all participating, whether it's donating airline miles or using a Thrifty Smiles card or using the Milo app. Um, it. It all adds up. You might think those little tiny amounts of change don't matter, but they really do.
0: So Phil, do, do donors then get something like a tax receipt or a tax benefit for what it is they're doing for this? Absolutely. So a donor would get
5: uh, alongside their investment uh, receipts for tax purposes at the end of the year, they get all their charitable receipts directly within the model application. So um, they can go through and make uh, these small recurring uh, donations on a, a more frequent basis and then go through and, and have um, just a single tax receipt available to them when, uh, when they're looking to file their taxes at the end of the year.
1: And how did you choose which organizations to partnership for the launch of this?
5: Absolutely. So we actually launched this across the country and um, when we were looking for maybe local partners uh, we really went back to our, our user base and all of our user base are, are millennials and we wanted to stand behind the causes that they care about uh, with the conversations around equality and promoting women in STEM careers. We, how could we not get involved with Uh So they were a great local partner for us in Vancouver and launching Milo uh, Roundup to Give in, uh, in BC.
0: And on the basis of what you might be able to uh, to acquire in the way of donations and all of this, does it at all um, influence where your programming might go?
4: Luckily, no. <laughs> I think that's a good thing, though. Um, since Squist has been around for what are we at thirty seven years now, um, we've uh, we adjust our programs on an ongoing basis based on what the community's uh, experiencing, because the problems that women getting into STEM fields experienced in the 80s are not the same problems of today. And so we're constantly changing and shifting directions. But luckily, donations like this from uh, private donors allow us to choose those directions without having those external stakeholders demanding what we choose to do.
1: And I imagine, too, this is a way to, to in a a relatively cost-efficient way, acquire donations as opposed to, say, the cost that would go into hosting events and raising awareness.
4: Absolutely. We're actually a volunteer-run organization. We have a working board of 10 women from across different sectors. We have a couple paid contractors, but we have no one going out there fundraising or schmoozing. I mean, we all do this off the end of our desks. So, yeah, having this somewhat passive income uh, to the organization. And I think it's really important that the people who are donating get those tax receipts because that's a real motivator for people. So overall, this program really fits with what we need.
0: And Phil, in terms of what um, Milo has been doing uh, involving all of this, uh, how does how does the society's uh, efforts uh, play into the broader range of services that you want to, uh, to help effect?
5: So we want to help people achieve all aspects of their their financial life directly within one application. I think this is one great way to support the causes that they care about. Um, Above and beyond that, uh, we're working directly with the society to be able to offer $5 of free donations for any one of their users who decides to give through this platform for the very first time. So what we do is we match uh, these donations uh, directly through that platform as well. So it's a great way for us to encourage our users to get involved and contribute to the causes they care about and for uh, working with great charities. to to fundraise even more
0: because the of the ease of it uh because of you're using an app uh so you're not filling out paperwork in the same way that a lot of other people would in order to get uh, a contribution uh effected does that lead to a behavior uh with with individuals that they then begin to be more conscious time and again when they have say spare money they have they they want to look at you know thirty or fifty or a hundred dollars to donate that that the app makes it just a lot simpler for us?
5: So Overall, donations have been going down over the past few years, but online giving has going up. So we've seen a shift in the way that people want to start giving. And I think this just makes it more accessible, right? They're giving more frequent, smaller donations, the way that we used to have pocket change to give to the local charities that we wanted to support. As we move to a cashless society, um, I believe that this is a way for them to continue those same kind of behaviors and, and ways of donating that they did before. It's simple, it's easy to do. You can do it directly in minutes, directly on a mobile application and, and have access to to uh, great organizations like Swiss and 86,000 other uh, Canadian charities as well.
1: Yeah, round up to give, uh, it just launched, 86,000 other charities, did you say? 8,600?
5: 8, 86,000 charities. So every registered wow. uh, Canadian charity is available directly through the model application.
1: There you go. So Danielle, now that this is an option available to Swiss, does the challenge then become, okay, how do we raise awareness for our society amongst 86,000 other options?
4: Well, we hope that being one of the featured uh, charities at their launch will uh, help that. But also, I feel like uh, people tend to give to the organizations they're already aware of. Not a lot of people just go scrolling through the 86,000 uh, list to try to find something. And we hope that like, we're pretty unique as far as uh, women in STEM organizations go and that we have the long legacy and history to rely on. Uh, but we also offer programs from youth work working professionals. Uh, We have a program for immigrating women in science. We're trying to adapt to being new to Canada, as well as our new Status of Women Canada project, which focuses on working with employers to increase diversity in the workplace. So we have a pretty big portfolio to appeal to a lot of different people. um, And I think that helps us stand out.
0: Have you set out on this this new project with any kind of an aim, an objective of, say, how much money you might be able to get out of a a procedure like this?
4: Not really. We're trying to increase awareness, obviously. As Phil said, um, when people use the link that we've got for Squist specifically, we get $5 if they sign up to the Milo app. That's amazing. That's just to get started. So that's great. We haven't set a goal. We've currently been establishing a new endowment fund for our organization, the Spirit of Squist Endowment Fund. And uh, so we've been trying to raise $36,000 to celebrate our 36th year, mm-hmm. uh, which is just coming to a close. So uh, I think we're just going to wait and see how it pans out. We hope that people will sign up and, and use the link specifically that gets us the donation. And uh, we're hoping for the best.
1: Best of luck with that, Danielle. Phil, thank you both very much well, for we joining should get us.
0: Before we go, uh, where do you go? Online? Yeah. Where do you go, Phil?
4: Oh, it's a complicated link. <laughs> uh,
5: absolutely. So it's a complicated link, but if you go to the Milo, if you download with Milo application through either the Play Store or App Store and type in the promo code MILO10, you can then uh, donate that $10 to uh, the Trista uh, directly by setting up a charitable goal for that foundation.
1: Perfect. Great. Again, Danielle, Phil, thank you both for joining us. Yeah, thanks thank for so having me. Much. In studio with us was Danielle Live and Good, a board member and vice president at the Society for Canadian Women in Science and Technology, Schwist. And on the line in Montreal, Phil Barrar, CEO and founder at Milo Financial Technologies. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can find this episode and past episodes over on iTunes, on Stitcher, and at BIV.com where you can find more business news across media. That's it for today. Thanks for listening.